You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. My family and I were on a, a getaway this past week down in the Gulf, and um, the last day that we were out on the beach, I, I had a magazine that I was working my way through um, associated with a collegiate sports team that I'm fond of that I will not uh, say because I believe that we are um, surely a house divided in that regard. Um, but I was reading through a number of articles associated with this team, and one of the last articles in the book uh, had to do with uh, the broadcast play-by-play announcer for this team, um, famous legacy, uh, one of the greats. And um, in his particular case, uh, he would he would use the language of we and us and our a lot in his in his play-by-play uh, broadcasting. You know, we were down and out. They almost had us by the throat. You know, that kind of language, just drawing you into the, the family as a fan um, of sorts. And all in opposition to everything he was taught in broadcast journalism, uh, which was not to do things like that. Don't make yourself a part of, of the team. And, and I was, as I was sitting there, for whatever reason, my mind kind of went down this rabbit trail of thinking with respect to, to preaching and that... Um, Oftentimes, young preachers, before they get kicked a time or two and laid low, there tends to be a lot of you and your in their preaching. And, and there's nothing wrong with you and your statements in preaching. Sometimes those are some of the strongest statements that can be made. Um, where do you sense in God's kindness that he's leading you to repentance? Uh, what is the Lord revealing to you as we sit with the scriptures in front of us? Those kinds of, of statements are, are good and, and right and well. But... After one or two of those dark nights of the soul for a a pastor, um, there seems to be an infusion of more we and us and and our in his preaching. Um, An an awareness and acknowledgement that that what he's preaching is as much for himself as anybody else in the room. And so you'll hear me say oftentimes when I'm praying, Lord, give me a feeling sense of the, the things I preach. And so I found myself on the beach that day grateful for those dark nights of the soul in the sense that that they brought a we and, and an hour and an us into the pulpit ministry of our, of our church, um, the, those times of being kicked and brought down. And then about an hour later, I stepped onto the boardwalk funny and I rolled my ankle. And for the better part of that evening, we were trying to figure out if, if it was a break or a sprain, it swelled up to the size of a, of a baseball that night. My wife had to drive us the seven-hour drive home the next day for the last few days. Um, been slowly trying to, you know, work my way up to standing on this stage for 30, 40 minutes, whatever it'll end up being when, when all's said and done. When I got my wits about me, which wasn't the, the same day that it happened, it was, I can't remember if it was the next day or two days later, I remember thinking, seriously, God, I, I got the lesson about the limp thing, the being laid low. I didn't need to actually roll my ankle on the way off the beach that day in order to, to get it. Um, I say all that to say, uh, if you see me, strangely walk over to the side of the stage in the middle of a sermon. It's because I brought my bedroom slippers with me in case I need a wardrobe change. So um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pray. Um, 
for me if for, for no one else. Um, but let me go ahead and invite you to open up to Colossians chapter two. That's where we're gonna be this morning. Uh, we'll be in verses 16 through 23, working our way through the end of that chapter by the time all's said and done. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Um, feel free to grab one of those Bibles and utilize it during your time with us this morning. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that home with you as the church's gift to you. Um, the passage will also be up on the screen behind me as we work our way through it this morning. Let me, let me go ahead and pray and we'll jump into God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, the good things that are birthed out of the dark nights of the soul that create a limp for us. I pray that you would help us to see those good things that you're bringing to bear out of those dark experiences and situations in life. Even if it's just a glimpse of the, the side of the tapestry with the knots, that you would, in your kindness, give us a glimpse of something of the ways that you're at work in our lives. Lord, I have no idea what others bring into this space this morning. I know I surely need the strength that you supply physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. God, give me what I need to preach your word. Give me a feeling sense of the things that I preach. Lord, I pray, Spirit of God, that you would move in power in this place as we sit with your inspired word in front of us, that we would see something of the glory of Christ Jesus, that we would walk away full this morning, nourished, happy in Christ, Spirit of God, we're desperate for you if that is to happen. So we invite you, we plead with you even to move in power and might this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. So the book of Colossians, uh, if you're new, this is sort of a getting you up to speed. If you're not, we call it a refresher. This is a book that undoubtedly brings us face to face with the glory of Jesus Christ. If you've been around for the opening weeks of the series, you've seen that. It's a book written to a, a body of believers likely established during Paul's third missionary journey, not by the apostle Paul himself, but a man named Epaphras, a man who had traveled to Ephesus during Paul's time there, had heard the gospel preached, took the gospel back to his hometown of Colossae, Epaphras now having returned to the Apostle Paul during his Roman imprisonment with word that the Colossian church is being threatened by a dangerous teaching or teachings. Paul's letter meant to encourage them to stay the course in bringing before them the glory of the risen, exalted, ascended Jesus that we might behold the true Christ, preeminent king and Lord over all, and that in our beholding, we might turn from practices that betray our Christian creed, our Christian confession, and live lives that are consistent with who we understand, believe, and profess Jesus to be. That's what Paul wanted for his original audience. That's what he wants for us this morning as we sit with the book of Colossians in front of us. Uh, a few weeks into this series, one begins to notice uh, something of a common thread running through this book of the Bible in its first couple chapters. I just alluded to it, namely the, the beauty, the majesty, the all supremacy and all sufficiency of Jesus Christ declared in different ways, different words and imagery. And yet the same glorious Jesus never to be abandoned, no matter what the competing voices may whisper with their hollow words, with their empty promises, 
So that the, the first several sermons in this series, perhaps sounding like the same sermon over and over again, as Paul understood that fixing our eyes on the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ is transformative. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18, Paul says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. I've said it before, without beholding, there is no becoming. Without seeing and savoring, there is no sanctification. Paul inviting us to see and savor the all-sufficient and all-satisfying Jesus Christ. This morning's time in the scriptures, it's gonna be much of the same. The same sermon you've heard for the last several weeks now. The competing voices perhaps exposed for uh, a little bit more of what they truly are. The excellencies of Jesus perhaps articulated in different words with different word pictures and yet an invitation yet again to behold. In the words of one scholar, Paul understood that when Jesus consumes our focus, everything else, everything else is put into its proper perspective. Him we proclaim, chapter one, verse 28. The Lord Jesus Christ, creator, sustainer, redeemer. What else is there to proclaim, Paul would ask, as if we could add our own lyrics to this great Colossian hymn of Christ. It's a song around which we'll spend the remainder of eternity trying to wrap our minds and hearts. It's the song of the gospel. For this I toil, Paul says. Not gonna suffer and die for gimmicks, for man-made religion, for empty, ritualistic, Christless church activity. The proclamation of Christ, Paul says, how disciples are made, how disciples are matured. So that it should come as no surprise to us uh, that this morning's passage would open up with these words. Therefore, Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Therefore, it's a word that always leads us to look back. Therefore, having received Christ Jesus the Lord, verse six, having been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority, verse 10, having experienced a circumcision of the heart, the old self ruled by the flesh put off in Christ, verse 11, having been united with Christ in his burial and resurrection, made alive together with him, verse 12. Our trespasses forgiven, verse 13. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands nailed to the cross, verse 14. God having disarmed the cosmic powers of this present darkness, having put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus, verse 15. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, drink, religious festivals, holy days. A lot of speculation as to what the competing voices in Colossae were whispering. Paul seems to be addressing um, something syncretistic, a, a marriage of elements of both Judaism and cultic pagan practice. Here speaking of things that seem to find their roots in the Mosaic law. Stipulations regarding food and drink like those found in Leviticus chapter 11. Strict observance of religious festivals and holy days like those found in Leviticus chapter 23. Such things in the eyes of some, the, the path of necessity to true spirituality and maturity 
those things that set apart the truly pious, the varsity folks, opening the door to new experiences of God, supposedly. So there, there was this sort of pressure on the Colossian believers, a passing of judgment on those who failed to embrace such practices, a culture of shame and guilt, as you can imagine. It's always the case when legalism is on the prowl, isn't it? When matters of conscience are treated as matters of necessity. Something that Paul hits on in a number of places in the New Testament. I'm reminded of Romans 14 where he includes these very specific issues. Dietary restrictions and religious ritualistic practices. Regarding such things, Paul says, verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The sacrificial worship of the Old Testament, it was a shadow. It was always looking ahead to the substance of Christ and his redemptive work. Jesus inviting us to, to play in the shadows no longer, like the author of the book of Hebrews Jesus himself having established a new covenant in his blood. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34, a famous passage. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant, the embedding of God's will deep within the hearts of his people by his spirit in the context of a restored relationship with him as his forgiven, as his beloved. Obedience no longer an obligation, but a joy birthed out of an astonishment that this God would move toward us by his grace. Run, John, run, the law commands. It gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. As I've said before, it's the red bull of Christianity, the gospel. As Paul says elsewhere, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The old covenant under Moses, it brought with it a, a ministry of condemnation, condemning law-breaking sinners, the, the written code pronouncing a death sentence. The new covenant established in Jesus' blood, bringing with it a ministry of righteousness, both right standing with God through faith in Christ and the righteousness empowered within us by the indwelling Holy Spirit that we've been given as a benefit and blessing of the new covenant. Jesus, the substance of the shadows, his ministry, a ministry of permanence. He's the prophet by whom God has spoken his final word. He's the priest having offered the once for all sacrifice to cleanse us from sin. He's the king whose kingdom shall never end. No shadows here. He's the true temple to which the shadows of both the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament pointed. He's the true fulfillment of all righteousness, a righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus, the glorious substance and reality, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament types and shadows. The identity of his people established not by outward religious rituals and practices, but by Christ himself and his redemptive work. So that Paul would go on to say, 
Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. If the whisper of the competing voices in verse 16 was you're not devout enough, the whisper of the competing voices in verse 18 is you're not spiritual enough. Experience of visions, worship of angels. That's what we're after. That language just vague enough in the original language that few are willing to say with certainty what it means. Maybe the treatment of angelic beings as objects of worship, though that would be a little strange that Paul wouldn't explicitly call out idolatry. We see him do that in other letters. Perhaps a calling upon angelic beings as a way of invoking God's blessing and protection seeing angels as mediating that which can only be found in the all-sufficient mediator, advocate, and high priest, Jesus Christ. Or maybe meaning that they saw themselves as joining in the angels' worship of God, entering the heavenly places, mystical experiences for those more advanced in their spiritual journey. After all, Paul does speak of these false teachers as going on in detail about visions of some sort, claiming in their in their piety, in their religious devotion to have had religious experiences only accessible to those having embraced their teachings and their practices. Whatever we might make of those religious experiences and our understanding of what Paul's pushing back on here. Insisting these false teachers were, verse 18, on asceticism. That word meaning humility or lowliness of of mind which Paul understands on their part to be nothing more than a false humility. This veneer of lowliness clothing a prideful heart. Puffed up without reason, he says, verse 18. Like the scribes and Pharisees in in Jesus's own day, having turned the sacred into the, the egotistical and theatrical, playing house with God, you might say, dressing the part of a righteous person, describing spiritual experiences all the while, verse 18, with sensuous or unspiritual minds. Going so far as to declare that those who refused to walk their path were disqualified in the eyes of God. All the while, they themselves having cut themselves off from the Lord Jesus. We see it all the time in the church. There's nothing new under the sun. It comes in different forms, shapes, packages, where we add to the gospel. We take matters of conscience, we make them matters of necessity, and we impose it on other people. And we suck the life out of the church when we do it. That's why Paul would go on to say, these false teachers, we're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Don't don't miss the the intensity of what Paul's describing. It's as graphic as last week's passage with the imagery of circumcision. Paul here is, is describing a decapitation of eternal consequence. Some in Colossae having severed themselves from Jesus Christ. It's him, Paul says, from whom we derive our our life, our nourishment, our growth. As we hold fast to him, the head of the body, sovereign Lord of the redeemed. Paul talks very similarly in his letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter four, 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Here you had a particular wind of doctrine blowing through Colossae in the surrounding area. Paul says, may it, may it not be so. Rather, Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. There's that imagery again. Into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How silly to treat as matters of necessity both acts of pious devotion and spiritual experiences that have no roots in Christ nor the gospel. To call such practices and experiences life-giving, a maturing in spiritual growth. After all, there is no lifeblood for a body absent of a head. That's what man-made religion is. It's a headless horseman riding around. There is no body, you could say it this way, no church with lifeblood coursing through her veins where there is no dependence upon and holding fast to Christ the head. Oh, the tragedy of the many churches that toil and struggle and claw their way in the name of growth strategies that have little to nothing to do with Jesus. For this I toil, Paul says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What is that task for which Paul toils? The hard but noble God-glorifying labor of making much of Jesus, that we, the body, might never cease to hold fast to the head. It's not as complicated as the church has made it out to be. Nourished and knit together, growing with the growth that is from God, Jesus, the head, we, the body. On him we depend, to him we hold fast, he we never stop proclaiming, clinging to the cross of Christ, holding fast to the Christ of the cross. Paul goes on, and it's almost as if he has him by the, by the collar as he's saying these words. In verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and, and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul here referring back to questions of food and drink, verse 16 religious festivals, and holy days. And we could surely add to the list of do this, don't do this. The path of necessity to true spiritual maturity in the eyes of, of many, whatever those things might be, setting apart the truly pious, opening the door to new experiences of God that couldn't be had otherwise, creating a pressure of expectation on the church 
and with it a spirit of judgmentalism on those who fail to embrace those practices, whatever they are. Paul declaring these kinds of things, this kind of thinking to be regulations according to human precepts and teachings, verse 22. It's actually language that's similar to what you find in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 29, where Isaiah writes, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me, here it is, is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people and wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. The discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Notice the the similarity in language between the words of Isaiah and those of the apostle Paul. Isaiah's words are rebuke on those having led Israel astray, the the so-called wisdom of wise men, a a perishing wisdom, an appearance of wisdom that doesn't stand the, the course and test of time. Nothing more than a commandment taught by men. The words of the apostle Paul too are rebuke on those seeking to lead the Colossians astray, having an appearance of wisdom, arguments clothed in sophistication and eloquence, having a persuasiveness about them, as is oftentimes the case with the most dangerous of teachings, especially those enshrouded in religion. Yet nothing more, Paul says, than human precepts, a fixation on the things of this world, things that perish, verse 22. I mean, don't don't miss the imagery of the language Paul's using here. That in Colossae, that there was a, a failing to elevate people into the heavenly experiences promised because they were actually being plunged into a fixation on the things of this world, the, going in the exact opposite direction. Self-made religion, that's what it does. And Paul says, oh, by the way, it has no value in overcoming sinful desires. Verse 23, no true power to transform the heart In fact, creating deeper bondage to the flesh, the self-serving aim to to restrain the flesh, only fanning into flame the power of the flesh. A do-it-yourself religion fanning pride into flame so that we end up when we live that way, not only worshiping our arbitrary standards, but worshiping ourselves for keeping those standards. All the while, to come back to that imagery of the body and the head, all the while doing great damage to the picture of the church as a body being knit together in love. Because what does self-made religion do? It only serves to create division when all's said and done. A line in the sand. On the one side, the smug and self-righteous. On the other side, the shame-faced and self-loathing. Which team are you on? Team pride or team despair? That's where man-made religion always leads. It's the outworking of Matthew 15, nine, the teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. Or as Paul describes it, going back to chapter two, verse eight, philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. Why, Paul asks, why would you live that way? As if you were still alive in the world. With Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Many of us know this. If, if we sat around and just told our stories after the service 
of our experience somewhere along the way in church life and activity of coming under the shackles of people's expectations in a way that was enslaving. The shackles of expectation, they can be incredibly enslaving, especially when those, when those expectations are enshrouded in religion. And yet our death in Christ has set us free from those shackles. The record of debt that stood against us, going back to last week, with its legal demands nailed to the cross, freeing us to, to live not in the pursuit of acceptance with God when we wake up each day, but from a position of acceptance that's already been um, gifted to us by our union with Christ, by grace, through faith, in Jesus. John Piper, in his commentary on this passage, he says it this way. He says, the enemy is sending against us every day, every day, the Sherman tank of the flesh with its canons of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. If we try to defend ourselves with pea shooter regulations, in other words, man-made religion, we will be defeated even in our apparent success. Why? Because our success will always lead us to pridefulness. And therein we lose as well. He goes on, he says, the only defense is to be, and here he uses the language of Colossians over and over again, to be rooted and built up in Christ and established in faith. Chapter two, verse six, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Chapter one, verse 11, holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together grows with the growth that is from God. Chapter two, verse 19, from God, he says, from God and not from ourselves. Again, there is no body, no church with lifeblood coursing through her veins where there is no dependence upon and holding fast to Christ the head. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Cut off from Jesus, I'd be dead, I the body, in Christ the head. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.